What is the highest good in the minds of most people? Freedom would rank very high on the list. There is nothing better than being at liberty to do what I want, to be who I want to be. For decades now, this has been a hallmark in many societies of the world. As one U.S. Supreme Court opinion said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now, in the Middle Ages, societies were regulated by religion, by the divine right of kings, divine law. But fast forward through the 18th century Enlightenment, and now, in many parts of the world, political order is based not on religion, but on the consent of the governed. Government is to secure rights of freedom to live however we want to live. Which explains all of the controversy going on in America these days related to abortion or transgender ideology or what pronouns I prefer. Human identity has become plastic in the sense that I can shape it to be whatever I want it to be. So much so that a U.S. Supreme Court nominee, when recently asked to define what a woman was, said that she couldn't define what a woman was, since she was not a biologist. And after all, gender has less to do with biology these days. It's more of a social construct, merely a set of behaviors that society has come to expect from people with particular kinds of bodies. The raging battle in much of the West revolves around this. I get to decide. The chief virtue, the most important thing, is my personal autonomy. Nobody tells me what to do or how to live. And when that perceived right is jeopardized, well, you see the upheaval happening in America today, for example. Of course, we here live in a different place. We here in Dubai are in a Muslim society. We are in a place that is historically untouched by many of these trends. And yet, even here, in the year 2020, laws were amended so that cohabitation with a member of the opposite sex is no longer punishable. Or take the Supreme Court of Korea, which recently overturned the conviction of a uh, homosexual couple for illicit behavior, and the court concluded as follows. The view that sexual activity between people of the same sex goes against our decent moral sense can hardly be accepted as a universal and proper moral standard for our time. Well, what this shows is that all over the world, mores are changing, not in the same way exactly, not according to the same pace, but we are increasingly interconnected in this world. 
And what many are demanding is the freedom to define themselves the way they want. It's to be a free agent based not on who God is, not on what God has said, but on how I feel, on what I desire emotionally. And what is the result of all this? Catastrophic levels of depression, heightened anxiety, increased incidence of suicide. Many of us have greater material prosperity than ever before, and yet we've never been unhappier. Carl Truman wrote, we are wealthier and healthier than our ancestors in the 16th and even mid-20th centuries, but we do not know who we are anymore. We've come to inhabit what Carl Truman called a strange new world. By the way, if these trends are of interest to you, this morning we have copies of Truman's book, A Strange New World, over there at the book table at the back, the bookstall. I would encourage you, if you want to dive deeper into this, this is an extremely insightful analysis of how we got to be where we are in our global culture today. It gives good insight into the current cultural moment, and there are eight copies available on the table there beside Baudet. Freedom today means I'm free to do whatever I want. But freedom is tricky. Just ask Thomas the train. Thomas wanted to get off the tracks so that he might roam freely and happily with the cows in the meadows and in the fields. But he'd been designed for those tracks, not for the meadows, not for the fields. Would he really experience freedom if he could be released from the tracks? Would such freedom lead to flourishing? Is Christianity the enemy of true freedom? Well, to consider these questions, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 15 and 16 this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 15 and 16, where we see the fact of freedom and the response to freedom. This is the outline of our message this morning. The fact of freedom, chapter 15, and the response to freedom, chapter 16. As you're turning there to Deuteronomy, let's remember these people had been slaves. They knew something about liberty. Previous generation had been in bondage in Egypt when God swept down in a miraculous deliverance and saved them, brought them as a free nation to be his chosen people, his treasured possession, into a promised land that was like a new Garden of Eden. And before they entered in, Moses gave laws and instructions that comprise this book of Deuteronomy. And we're walking steadily and consecutively past these chapters where we see this morning in chapter 15, first, the fact of freedom. 15 verse 1. At the end of every seven years you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. 
of a foreigner, you may exact it. But whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all of this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. So when people fell on hard times financially, when they had to borrow money, every seven years, the slate was wiped clean. And God instructed all of the creditors, you shall release. You shall not exact payment from your brother. As I thought of this this week, I thought, wouldn't it be great if MasterCard and Visa <laughs> allowed us to write off our debt and start over every seven years? Now, in the ancient world, simply a poor harvest could put a family back, or say the death of a hardworking husband, and the family finds itself in debt. But God said for Israel, every seven years, you get to start over. Yahweh had not delivered these people out of slavery. He had not sustained them during 40 years of the wilderness in order that they might just languish in poverty in the promised land. And so he unilaterally wiped the slate clean every seven years, just as the people were to rest one day in seven. Now, some have said this release was just a suspension of the debt for one year, so that, uh, you know, after the one year you would have to pay up. I think that's unlikely, though, because after seven cycles of seven years, that is 49 years, there was, Leviticus tells us, what was called a jubilee year, when everyone returned to their original family real estate, even if it had been mortgaged. Even if it had been sold, they reverted back to it. The idea was a fresh start. Remind the people they had been delivered by a generous, by an almighty God. Every seven days, every seven months, every seven years, God's people rested from their labors. A regular reminder of what God had done for his people. Now, if you were one of the creditors, if you were the one lending, well, how would you feel about this? Look at verse 7. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it might be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open, your, open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor, 
in your land. God was telling these creditors, be generous, even if it hurts. Even if you never get paid back. And why? Does he give them incentives? Does he give them reasons why they should behave so counterculturally? Well, he does. He gives three reasons. Here's the first one. God has enough wealth to pay you back. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. They would become like the World Bank, lending to many, borrowing from none, if only they would strictly observe all that the Lord had said in His law. Just trust the Lord. Care for the poor and the orphans and the widows and just watch the economic blessings come flowing in. Now, in that ideal scenario, there would be no poor among you. Motivation number two. These people are not just debtors. They're brothers. Look at verse 2. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what is lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it. But whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. You see, creditor and debtor. They're both part of the same family. This release didn't apply to everyone. There would be expats living among the people. There were non-Jews there. They still had to pay, but not God's people, because they were family. And the same, of course, is true of us in the church, as the Apostle Paul said, do good to everyone, especially those who are in the household of faith. So a priority to those who are in the covenant community in a world of limited resources. I mean, in a fallen world, the needs will be limitless. No economic system known to man can eradicate poverty. Not only are there greedy, heartless lenders, there are also lazy, irresponsible borrowers. Which is why verse 11 says very realistically, there will never cease to be poor in the land. And of course, Jesus said the same thing. The poor you will always have with you. So there's a tension. Ideally, verse 4, there will be no poor among you. But realistically, verse 11, there will never cease to be poor among you. So care for your brothers. And then here's the third incentive why these, these lenders should be generous. was because the Lord lo- looks at the heart. You know, the Lord cares not only on how much you give, but the attitude with which you give it. Notice that in verse 9. Verse 9, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Now, the heart is who you really are. 
the heart is you as God sees you, you know, with the, the face mask removed. You can harden your heart, verse 7, or you can open your hand, verse 8. These are the two options. The way you feel when you pay your DEWA bill should not be the same as the way you feel when you put money in the offering basket as it goes around. Don Whitney said there are three kinds of giving, grudge giving, duty giving, and thanksgiving. Grudge giving says I have to. Duty giving says I ought to. Thanksgiving says I want to. Friends, God loves a cheerful giver. So give generously. If God, if God had rescued these people out of Egypt, then would he allow them to languish in poverty now? If he had not rescued them out of Egypt, where would they be? What would they own? They would still be in slavery. They would have no personal possessions. So they must now be generous toward others. Now, are we doing okay with that here at the United Christian Church of Dubai? How are we providing for those who fall on hard times among us? Well, probably the, the way this happens most commonly is just through personal relationships. You know, as we know each other, I know many of the home groups that meet throughout the city tend to have close-knit relationships. They express their needs to one another. It's uh, so encouraging to get around and just hear of people helping one another. And of course, every month when we take the Lord's Supper, at the conclusion of that time, we have a benevolence offering. So that second offering every month is for what we call the benevolence fund. And there is a committee that is set aside called the Benevolence Committee to administer these funds. Now, let me ask the, the five folk who serve on that committee to stand so that we can see you. It's important that we know who you are. Everybody on the Benevolence Committee stand up. So there's Adam. Uh, there's Prosper. He's the deacon of Benevolence. There's Dan. Olabisi. And where's Patty? She's downstairs. Yeah, remain standing. Look, keep an eye on these guys. You should pray for these people to have wisdom in the ways they administer these funds. Thank you. Have a seat. They, not, they provide counseling. They meet with these people personally, uh, mostly from the church, but also occasionally people outside the church. They need wisdom. This is one of the primary ways that we as a congregation care for the needs that are among us. So let's energetically serve the poor because this is what Christians have always done. As early as the fourth century, Roman Emperor Julian the Apostate hated the Christians, but he had to admit, grudgingly, that they did show love and compassion, as he said, Galileans, to our disgrace, support not only their poor, but ours. So, have you opened your hand in generosity? Or have you closed your heart? in greed. Moses gave instructions here for slavery as well. Slavery, verse 12. Chapter 15, verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, 
and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. Sometimes people point to passages like this and they say, see, the Bible does condone slavery. In fact, if we're going to read the Bible literally, sometimes people say, then slavery is still permitted even today. But of course, that's not what this says. This is not what Moses intended. It's an unfair distortion of what he said. Let me explain. You need to understand that there are different kinds of slavery. Let me tell you three different kinds. This is important for you to know. First, there is race-based slavery. Race-based slavery. Think of the Arab slave trade out of Zanzibar, beginning in the 8th century, sending African slaves to Arabia, Mesopotamia, Turkey. Or think of the transatlantic slave trade where millions of Africans were kidnapped and sent to America beginning in the 17th century. That's not what Deuteronomy is talking about. So-called Christians in the American South defended the practice of slavery on the ground that they were not truly human or they were somehow cursed and as a result family members were separated, education was prohibited, it was the ultimate denial of human liberty. Now, people want to blame the Bible, but the Bible never approved anything like this. Race-based slavery is not what Deuteronomy is talking about. In fact, man-stealing, kidnapping, is prohibited in the Bible. Look this up later. Exodus 21, verse 16. Exodus 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. It was a capital punishment. Now, people blame Christians for the scourge of American slavery, and it is true that many who called themselves Christians in the American South owned and abused slaves. One slave reported that his master served him communion in the morning and then whipped him in the afternoon for showing up late to work. It is unquestionably shameful for how many Christians defended slavery. But here's the thing. They were far outnumbered by Christians who opposed slavery. It was the Christians who led the charge for abolition. So slavery, described here in Deuteronomy 15, is not that. But there's a second kind of slavery that is in the Bible. Here's the second kind. Foreign slavery or captives of war. Remember, the nation of Israel was constantly under threat by hostile nations. And when enemy nations were conquered from outside Canaan, then God authorized that those enemy combatants would become forced labor for the nation of Israel. Now, we'll see more of this in chapter 20. This forced labor was simply a byproduct of holy war, as we have seen throughout Deuteronomy. So it was connected to the unique historical moment when God had a chosen people living in the promised land as a geopolitical entity. Don't forget, for a unique period of time, God's people had a military. They lived within geographical boundaries. They had 
civil laws and judges. And if hostile nations tried to destroy them, well, then the combatants became forced labor. But even then, as we'll see in chapter 20, God's people were still to treat them with compassion and kindness, give them weekly rest, for example, and even sometimes compensation. But this foreign slavery did not continue on after the theocracy. In other words, this wasn't an institution for perpetuity. There is nothing in the Bible to suggest that slavery should in any way continue. So, it is a dishonest distortion to say, well, according to a little reading, the Bible permits slavery even today. No, misreading. And then the third category of slavery is Hebrew slavery. That's what we have here in verse 12. 15 verse 12. If your brother a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you. Now, this is a slavery altogether different. In fact, in the book of Leviticus, it says don't even call it slavery. Call him a hired worker. That's more accurate. You see, in the ancient world, there was no bankruptcy law. If someone defaulted on a debt, if somebody had no money, one way to pay off the debt was to enter into indentured servitude. Now, this was not the ruthless oppression of slave-based servitude or slavery. Raymond Brown said this is more in the nature of living in employment in an extended family situation. It was a common economic arrangement. We see it throughout the Greco-Roman world where we see philosophers, medical doctors, government officials. Sometimes they were slaves, and people could purchase their freedom. And the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians... If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. But what's different, what's unique here in Deuteronomy, is that every seventh year, the Hebrew slaves were set free. No matter how much debt was remaining. Every seven years, they had a reset. Debts forgiven, freedom restored. But not only that, he didn't leave empty-handed. Look at verse 14. 15, verse 14. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. Had the Lord been generous to the employer, then by that same measure, he should be generous to his former servant. Treat them humanely. Treat them compassionately. Why? Because of verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Unlike all of the slavery of the ancient world, these servants were set free every seven years. Because God, the God of Israel, had set His people free. And since this was not the ruthless oppression of race-based slavery, many times people preferred to live within that arrangement. They wanted to stay there. Verse 16. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at half the cost of a hired worker he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do.
far from condoning racial slavery, the Bible actually had the seeds of the overthrow of slavery, which worked itself out over the succeeding centuries. By the fourth century, Chrysostom said Christ had annulled slavery. He told the wealthy people in his church, yes, buy slaves, teach them a trade, and then set them free. Or as the Apostle Paul said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And friends, even today, even in the hardest places in the world, Christ is known as a liberator. Sharon James tells of how North Koreans escaping into China are sometimes caught and sent back into concentration camps or certain death, but if they do elude capture in China, they're often told, look for the cross. Look for the cross, James says. Even though Christians in China are themselves under severe pressure from the authorities, many take huge personal risks to help refugees from North Korea. Look for the cross to set you free. Of course, ultimate slavery is not political, is it? It is not economic. Ultimate slavery is moral. As Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Friends, Christianity is not the enemy of freedom. It is the only hope of it. Here is the fact of freedom. And then our second point, the response to freedom. This is chapter 16. The response to freedom. You know the annual calendar of Israel was punctuated by feasts and festivals of joyous celebration. Now, these feasts that we read about, they were not boring religious gatherings. They were more like festive parties, apparently. Look at 16 verse 11. 16 verse 11, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Or look down at verse 14. Verse 14, you shall rejoice in your feast. Or look at the end of verse 15. So that you will be altogether joyful. This is how people respond to being set free. And as the people were there assembled on the plains of Moab, just about to enter into the promised land, Moses gave three celebrations that they must observe every year. Here's the first one, the Passover celebration. 16 verse 1. Observe the month of Abib and give the Passover to the Lord your God. Keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or from the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no unleavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. You can read of that more later in the book of Exodus, chapter 12 and 13, where God's judgment was unleashed against the people of Egypt for enslaving His people 
God unleashed these ruinous plagues, undoing the land. Gnats and frogs and flies and hail and darkness thick enough to be felt. Pharaoh was threatening God's son, the people of Israel. And so God threatened Pharaoh's firstborn son. God would send in this climactic tenth plague, he would send a destroyer angel to kill all of the firstborn of the land. Only those homes with blood on the doorposts would be spared. So the destroyer angel would see the blood, and then he would pass over that house. And the Israelites, interestingly, they were no different from the Egyptians. They were equally exposed to the destructive plague, just like everybody else, unless a substitute was provided and blood was shed. So instead of sinful people who were sentenced to die, the lamb died in its place. So God's people were evacuated. Just imagine millions of Ukrainians departing Ukraine westward into Poland, but even worse. It says they ate the bread of affliction, in verse 3, because they were on the run. Which is why in future Passover celebrations, the bread would always be unleavened, reminding them of the old days of bondage and their hasty evacuation. Well, there's a second festival that they observed. It's called the Festival of Weeks. It's there in verse 9. That's also called Pentecost, from the Greek word for 50, 50 days after the first Sabbath of Passover, verse 9. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Well, this was simply an offering of new grain to the Lord, uh, signifying His goodness, His provision for them. As year followed year, they would show their dependence on the Lord, who was the source of every good gift, and they would give in proportion to how He had given to them. So if it was a bumper crop one year, they would give more. Not only had God brought them out of bondage, but He cared for them over time. And then the third and final festival was called the Feast of Booths, or sometimes the Feast of Tabernacles. This was another commemoration of God's faithfulness. It's in verse 13. Verse 13, you shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce, and get this, in all the work of your hands He will bless you, so that you will be altogether joyful. And what the people did was they made tents out of uh, fronds and twigs and branches, just like their housing back in the days of the wilderness wandering. 
They did this to commemorate the Lord's faithfulness to them. So in all three of these celebrations, I hope you see how unashamedly God-centered these celebrations were. It was a rhythm every seven days, every seven months, every seven years, these people rested and remembered. Surely this has something to say to us, right? I mean, for us today, I fear that the idea of rhythm and observation has simply gone out the window. I mean, this is one of the problems with the mobile phone. We're always on call. And the pandemic made it even worse. There's no longer any rhythm between the work week and anything else. We never switch off. And as a result, we lead frenzied, we lead frazzled lives. Ecclesiastes 2 says, what does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. I wonder, does that describe you? Could it be said of you that you never really switch off? That you're constantly on call? You're not able to really relax with the Lord? If that can be said of you, who is it that you're really trusting in anyway? Well, I think these holy days are useful. They are obviously biblical. And if that's true, why don't we observe them as a church today? I mean, why aren't we gearing up for Pentecost, which begins in only four weeks? Well, for one thing, we don't observe these because we're not Israel. Right? This was an old covenant ceremony. These were people with unique historical experiences. But more important than that, we don't observe these festivals because they've all been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, all of these feasts and festivals pointed forward specifically to Him. Turn with me to the New Testament, to Colossians chapter 2, where you'll see this very clearly. Colossians 2, verse 16. And then we'll come back to Deuteronomy. But I wanted you to see Colossians 2, 16. This is a beautiful verse, 16 and 17. Colossians, it's after Galatians, after Ephesians, after Philippians. Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So, looming behind the Passover, standing behind the festival of booths, behind all of the Old Testament shadows was a solid substance. All the feasts, all the commemorated events pointed straight forward to Jesus Christ Himself. Take Passover for a moment. At Passover, judgment fell on Egypt, but God's people were delivered. Well, they weren't delivered because they were inherently any better than the Egyptians. They were not delivered because of their ethnicity that somehow protected them. No, it was because of the lamb. There was a lamb that had been offered 
that was without blemish or defect when it was sacrificed. Interestingly, that's how all the sacrifices were described. 1521. 1521. But if any has a blemish, if it is blind or lame or has any serious blemish or whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Friends, you and I are blemished, morally speaking. You and I are defective spiritually by our own sin. We can never atone for ourselves, much less for anyone else. But the New Testament says Jesus was a lamb without blemish, without defect. That means he was holy, completely without sin, perfectly suited in every way to be our substitute sacrifice. And Jesus offered himself on the cross in order to shield us from the inescapable wrath of God. As the Apostle Paul said, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And Israel's deliverance out of Egypt prefigured, it anticipated an even greater exodus from the slavery of sin. Friends, each one of us in this room by nature is a prisoner of sin. We were made in God's image. We were designed to live for Him and to enjoy Him forever, but each of us has turned away from Him. And as a result, we have brought down God's judgment against us. We've come under His right and righteous wrath. But the good news is that God offered His Son a sacrifice without blemish or defect, who stood in our place, bore our penalty at the cross, so that for anyone who would turn and trust, you can be saved. So if you're not a Christian here today, if you're still under the penalty for your sin, what must you do? Well, you must do the same thing those North Korean defectors were told to do as they were escaping into China. Look for the cross. Simply look for the cross. It is there where the price was paid in full for all who would ever turn and believe in Him. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. All of the feasts, all of the festivals, they were all shadows whose substance is Christ. And now every day is a holy day for all of us who are in Him. And what if you are a believer? My friend, what does this say to you? Simply remember what the Lord has done. Look at 15, verse 15. Chapter 15, verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. So the whole annual calendar was so that we wouldn't forget. I wonder, have you begun to forget, my Christian friend, that you were a slave? You were imprisoned. You were entrapped. You were without hope. Have you forgotten, my friend, what it was like when you first accepted Christ? When He poured out His love upon you by the Holy Spirit? Or when your zeal for the Lord was at a fever pitch, 
but instead now you're just going through the religious motions. You're just coming as a matter of habit, culturally, with no real affection for Christ. What must you do? Look for the cross. Look for the cross. John Owen once said, His blood is the sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. And so all you need to do if your soul is sick with sin is look for the cross. Look to His blood shed on the cross for hopeless and loveless sinners. Owen said, look on Him under the weight of our own sins, praying, bleeding, dying. Look to Him, not simply in your own imagination, but in the Scripture. Open the Bible and look to Him. It is the regular reading of Scripture that refreshes us in gospel truth, enabling us to see Christ and savor Him for who He really is. So look to Him. Look to Him in the Word and see if God doesn't awaken fresh affections for you. Friends, this makes all the difference in the world. It even makes the difference in the mundane things like our work during the week. Let me just say this one thing as we close. For you Christians who are struggling at work or finding it to be monotonous or pointless, you, know, you can have joy even in your work. Look at 16, verse 16. Chapter 16, verse 16. The Lord God will bless you in all your produce and, notice this, in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. No matter if work is hard, no matter if work seems pointless at times, if you work as unto the Lord, then it has great meaning. It is a significant expression of your honor of Him in the ways you go about your work. Now, this is very unlike Hinduism. Hinduism would tell you, you may have to suffer in this life for what you did in a previous life, and therefore you're in a lower caste or class. You're doomed to a life of poverty and despair and meaninglessness. This says, no, your whole life can be profoundly impacted by the joy of your salvation. That doesn't mean we don't live in a fallen world. We do. That doesn't mean that sometimes work will seem monotonous and unpleasant. It will. But even hard physical labor can be meaningful. It can be rewarding if you carry it out unto the Lord. So there is the fact of freedom, and there is the response to freedom. Rejoicing in a restored relationship with the living God. A relationship that has effects for all of our lives. Now, the world wants freedom, I guarantee you. But at what cost? The world defines freedom as, I belong to myself and not anybody else. I call the shots. But if you've tried that route, let me ask you. Did you find it to be very satisfying? Does that bring true happiness? How does that work out, for example, in marriage? If I go into marriage thinking, me first, my needs before my wife, is that going to go well? Isn't any love relationship a surrendering of your desires, a yielding of your needs and wants to put somebody else first? 
Isn't that the greatest intimacy that we can possibly enjoy? Jesus invites you to know true freedom by yielding to Him, by turning to Him. What did He say? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. True freedom, ironically, is yielding to Christ, submitting to Him. You see, He's the one we were designed for. Thomas the train was designed for the tracks. You and I, as humans made in God's image, were designed for Christ, and we can trust Him. Because after all, He gave His life for us, right? He was nailed fast to a cross such that He could not move so that you and I might be set free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to look to the cross. We praise you for the liberating victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether we are here this morning as non-believers who have not yet crossed the line, or whether we've been following Jesus for years and decades, we pray that by your Spirit, even as we sing this closing song, you would help us to look to the cross. And that as we do, our affections might be heightened and lifted to where Christ is. For His glory alone we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen.